0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Imagine a home in which
1: a daughter has been trained in all the graces that are necessary for a true lady to become mistress in her own house, how her parents would grieve if she would throw herself away on some worthless fellow. And that is how Paul felt when he saw these Galatian Christians whom he had brought out of Gentile heathenism turning back to a legalistic heathenism. Law and grace cannot be mixed. And until we see that the law is intended to condemn us, we shall never rejoice pulley in the grace of god which makes salvation possible
0: The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, By Grace Alone. After a full week of work, if our employer said to us as he handed us our paycheck, here is a gift for you, we would think, gift? I earned this. But when it comes to salvation, is there anything we can do to earn God's favor? Stay with us. As Dr. Barnhouse examines Paul's words to the people at Galatia, on salvation, works, and grace. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Galatians chapter 4 and verses 8 through 31. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, By Grace Alone. Through the Lord Jesus
1: Christ, we come unto Thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We know without Thee we can do nothing. And we pray thee that there may be that in the going forth of thy word in this hour, which shall deepen our spiritual life and strengthen us in thee for our daily tasks. Hear us and meet our need, whatever it may be. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying Galatians and we come to a chapter that we call By Grace Alone. It begins with the fourth chapter and the eighth verse. Last week, we saw how Paul taught the Galatians that having been saved by grace, they were no longer under the slavery of the law, but were the children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And now in this study, he takes these believers to task for wishing to turn back to the slavery of legalism. Chapter 4, verse 8. Howbeit then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Now, throughout all of the Old Testament, there is a Hebrew word, frequently translated idols, which is literally no gods. It was often used by the prophets to sneer at the folly of men who thought there could be any God other than the living and true God. The Baal of the enemies of Elijah was a no-god. The God of any group which denies the deity and saviorhood of Christ is no-god. Verse 9, but now... After that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? The Galatians were idolaters, but so are all men until they have been regenerated by God. The Galatians turned to Christ from dark paganism, and a great change took place. They knew God. The Holy Spirit will not allow anything to feed man's ego. And so now the Lord carefully explains that they were not responsible for their own salvation. They knew God only because he had revealed himself to them and had worked within them. Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And here he is saying, you have not known me, but I have known you. Everything we have and everything we are, we receive as gift. No man ever sought God until God first sought him. The Galatians came from heathenism into salvation by grace alone. And now they were turning back to legalism, which the Spirit tells us is a turning back to heathenism. God's law is holy. But any attempt to be saved or sanctified by it is sin. The law is no more an instrument of salvation or of sanctification than is an idol, a no-god. The Galatians had been imprisoned by the law until faith opened the door and freed them. And now we have the spectacle of these foolish, bewitched Galatians pounding on the prison door, begging to be shut up again. In verse 10, you observe days and months and times and years. Now, you can understand this remark only as sarcasm. God seems to say, you keep Lent and Good Friday and give special importance to one particular day of the week. We must not forget that God reveals through Amos his hatred for such practices when they become substitutes for real spirituality. And when God says that he hates something, it's time for us to take notice. Listen to him in Amos 5, 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell incense in your solemn assemblies. Now God himself ordained these feasts of Israel. The fault did not lie with the feasts, the fasts, and the solemn assemblies but with the fact that the people used these things to cover up their corrupt living and offered them as a substitute for the faith that they should have possessed as the descendants of Abraham. Someone may ask, but do you not observe Easter? Yes, I do. But I observe it 52 Sundays in the year and all the other days in between. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. God has told us that it is quite all right for a believer to esteem every day alike. And if one should esteem one day above another, as some believers do, this is acceptable to God, provided the believer does so as an act of true worship and not as a matter of legalism. How lovingly he says to such people in Romans 14, 6, He who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Truly, we stand or fall to him alone. I know parents who ban all Christmas celebration and their children are forlorn in the midst of the joy of that season. It's not wrong for us to have fun at Christmas, to put up special lights and exchange gifts. The believer's joy at that time is all the more deep because it's founded on the truth of the word made flesh dwelling with us and bringing Christmas joy in winter, spring, summer, and autumn. Now, verses 11 and 12, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me at all. Now, Paul never feared his enemies, but he was afraid for the people who had been blessed through his ministry. Imagine a home in which a daughter has been trained in all the graces that are necessary for a true lady to become mistress in her own house. How her parents would grieve if she would throw herself away on some worthless fellow. And that is how Paul felt when he saw these Galatian Christians whom he had brought out of Gentile heathenism turning back to a legalistic heathenism. He next reminds them of the oneness in Christian fellowship that they had enjoyed. In verses 13 to 15, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and my testing which was in my flesh you despised not, nor rejected, but received me as a messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Paul had a disease of the eyes which made him repugnant to look at. He was almost blind, but these Galatian believers had such love for him that they would have given him their own eyes if that had been possible. Incidentally, note that there was no divine healing for Paul. He wrote to the Corinthians that he had prayed three times for the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh. But God had answered him that divine strength is made perfect in human weakness. Paul then glorified in his infirmities so that the power of Christ might rest on him. Paul reminds the Galatians of their great love for one another, a love that would have given eyes for their teacher. Now he is forced to fight against their false doctrine of legalism. Verse 16, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you, that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. I believe that it's practically impossible to understand the King James translation of this passage. But if properly translated, it explains itself. Paul had not become their enemy by telling them the truth. God has told us in Proverbs, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The sense of the passage is that the legalizers from Jerusalem had fawned upon these Galatians and made much of them. But their flattery was not for any good purpose. These legalizers were willing to shut the Galatians out of heaven for the gratification of seeing these gullible souls bow to them and give them the credit for possessing the final authority of God. In his first epistle, Peter warns against being lords over God's heritage. Instead, he says in the same chapter, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. In Galatians, Paul admits that it's all right to be acknowledged, providing it's for a good purpose, even when Paul himself was not among them. So in verses 19 and 20 Paul's own heart of love toward the Galatians is fully revealed. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my tone for I stand in doubt of you. The eagerness of the true minister of the gospel of grace is like that of the labor pangs of a woman in travail who wants, oh, so much to be delivered of the child she is carrying. Paul was just as eager for these people to know the life of Christ within them. When Christ fully possesses a believer, that one enjoys full grace. The increasing awareness of the presence of Christ causes the decrease of legalism. The life is governed by the love of the Savior God, who possesses the entire being and lives his life in the Christian. Paul acknowledges that he is writing very sternly. He tells them that he wishes he was among them, that he might talk face to face in such a tone that they would understand the depth of his love and be drawn back to the simplicity of salvation by grace alone. He's greatly concerned for them. Are they truly saved? They came out of paganism, yes, but was this but a temporary motion of the flesh, a seed sown on shallow ground that pushed up rapidly only to droop because there was no real life from God? So he asks them a question, and then he answers it. In verses 21 and 2 we read, Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons. Now before reading the verses in which Paul describes the allegory of the two sons of Abraham let me tell you the story. One of the key verses of history is Genesis 11:30 which says but Sarah was barren she had no child. Out of that fact came great tragedy and its results are in the newspapers of this century as the Arabs and the Jews war on each other. These who are half brothers in their origin In a culture where sons were very important, Abram had none. To make matters worse, his name Abram meant father of many. We can well imagine humorous incidents occurring when caravans stopped to buy water and provender for their camels and food for the travelers. The merchants would visit Abram and with Oriental courtesy would ask, your name is Abram, father of many. How nice. How many children do you have? None, Abram would be forced to reply, and there would be a roar of laughter. Nevertheless, God had promised to make Abram's name great and to give him posterity as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. Now Abram was getting old, and Sarah was barren. So according to the custom of that time, Sarah offered Abram her own personal slave, a girl named Hagar, an Egyptian any child of such a union would belong to the wife who owned the slave. And Sarah thought by this means to produce the son whom God had promised. Abram consented to the plan and Hagar conceived. Hagar, the Bible tells us, despised her mistress. And Sarah became terribly jealous of her slave. Finally, the girl fled from the wrath of Sarah. But the Lord appeared to her and sent her back to stay with Sarah until her son Ishmael was born 13 years passed. God told Abram that he would not accept Ishmael as the fulfillment of the divine promise that he would change his name from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah with a final H and that they would have a child within a year Abraham was now 99 and Sarah was 89 a year later Isaac child of that promise was born of Sarah and Abraham. The important part of the story is that although Abram was virile when he begot Ishmael, Abraham was sterile in the succeeding years before Isaac was born. The whole argument of the book of Romans turns on this fact, and the reason is given in the portion that we are about to read in Galatians. To the Romans, Paul wrote that Abraham, being not weak in faith, considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was reckoned unto him as righteousness. Now in Galatians. God tells us that this ancient family history forms an allegory to show the nothingness of legalism and the divine truth of grace alone. The child Ishmael was begotten of a slave mother by Abraham's own powers. The child Isaac was begotten of a free mother by God's miraculous powers. God can never accept what is done by self. He can only accept what he himself perfectly does within us by grace. And so Ishmael represents law works and Isaac represents free grace. Now let's go back and read the story beginning at verse 22. Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh that is to say, by natural powers. But he of the free woman was by promise, that is to say, by the miracle power of God. Which things God says are an allegory for these are the two covenants, the one that is of law from Mount Sinai, which bears children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery to the Roman Empire with her children. But the Jerusalem from above, from heaven, is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. And having told the story, Paul now draws the conclusion in verse 28. Now we, brethren as Isaac was, are the children of the promise. Salvation by grace, Isaac. Salvation by works, Ishmael. Salvation by baptism, Ishmael. Salvation by circumcision, Ishmael. Salvation by church going, Ishmael. Salvation by Jesus Christ alone, Isaac. And then comes the sad part about this division. People who believe in ritual, form, ceremony, sacraments, and so on as means of salvation always hate the idea of salvation by grace alone. Those who believe that salvation once received can be lost again, persecute those who hold that once a man has been justified, he is forever justified. And verses 29 and 30 emphasize this. But as then... He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Now, these verses point out to us that, so far as salvation is concerned, the law is dead to us. The law can never take away sin. The law can never make anyone perfect. The law can only stop every mouth and declare everyone guilty before God. The law can never save because it is weak in the flesh. Thus, as Ishmael was followed by Isaac and superseded by him and the bondwoman by the free woman, so the law is superseded by the grace of God. And now we come to the last verse in this chapter, verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. In these final words of chapter 4, the great apostle shows that to be born again is to be a son of freedom, the freedom of God's grace. No longer are we under the condemnation of the law. Paul sets this forth very clearly in the 8th chapter of Romans where he writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Although we rejoice in the full freedom of grace, we still weep for those who believe all the fundamentals except the great fundamental of salvation by grace alone. Law and grace cannot be mixed And until we see that the law is intended to condemn us, we shall never rejoice fully in the grace of God which makes salvation possible. We had nothing to do with saving ourselves. We had nothing to do with keeping ourselves. This is why we love holiness and why we live in grace alone. To you who are listening to my voice today, I say, Will you not fully rest in the grace of God? Believe that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And our God and Father, we pray thee to bless the word as it goes forth and use it in the life of each listening one to the praise and the glory of thy grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Rest in the grace of God and realize he who has begun a good work in you will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org Log on to this week's message entitled By Grace Alone An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll free at 1-800-488-1888 Today's message again is entitled By Grace Alone Or simply request message number Q111 We would also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, Death Swallowed Up in Victory. In this four-chapter booklet, Dr. Barnhouse answers such questions as, What happens the moment you die? Where are the dead right now? Is there such a thing as soul sleep? These and many other questions on the subject of death are addressed with biblical insights. Ask for a free copy for yourself or to share with a friend who is going through bereavement or struggling with the issues of death. Ask for your free copy of Death Swallowed Up in Victory when you call or write. Also, when you call or write, be sure and request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's books and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Or if you would like to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.